The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The company operates extremely differently now versus in 2018 around privacy. So the fine was a big number, but... The more substantive action is the change in the practice. I'm Quinta Jurassic, Senior Editor at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, April 28th, 2023. Today, we're bringing you an episode of Arbiters of Truth, our series on the information ecosystem. In 2018, news broke that Facebook had allowed third-party developers, including the controversial data analytics firm Cambridge Analytica, to obtain large quantities of user data in ways that users probably didn't anticipate. The fallout led to a controversy over whether Cambridge Analytica had in some way swung the 2016 election for Trump. Spoiler, it almost certainly didn't. But it also generated a $5 billion fine imposed on Facebook by the FTC for violating users' privacy. Along with that record-breaking fine, the FTC also imposed a number of requirements on Facebook, to improve its approach to privacy. It's been four years since that settlement, and Facebook is now meta. So how much has really changed within the company? Alan Rosenstein and I interviewed Meta's chief privacy officers, Aaron Egan and Michelle Prati, about the company's approach to privacy and its response to the FCC's settlement order. Two quick notes before we begin. At one point, we mentioned a class action settlement over the Cambridge Analytica scandal although we don't get into details. For more, you can see the links in the show notes. And second, Meta provides support for Lawfare's digital social contract paper series. This podcast episode is not part of the series, and Meta does not have any editorial role in Lawfare. It's the Lawfare podcast, April 28th, an interview with Meta's chief privacy officers. The first question that Quint and I have for you is uh, just to kind of set the set the scene. Why are there two chief privacy officers at Meta? It's an unusual setup, uh, and I'm sure there's a good reason for it, and I'm sure it creates its own interesting dynamics. And so I'd love to hear you talk about sort of where that came from and how that operates on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, sure. And I'm happy to start, Michelle, if you'd like, mainly because perhaps I've been the longest-running uh, chief privacy officer of public policy, at least in the role. So it's it's a great question. And we think this actually uh, does make us quite unique and in many ways it, it helps us tremendously. And I, and I can explain how. When I think of privacy and data protection at Meta, there really are three legs to the stool. I'm a lawyer by training. I was a partner at Covington and Burling. I built up our privacy and data protection practice at Covington. But when I came over, I was asked to lead a public policy team. So I don't sit within legal. My job as public policy and privacy is to go out in the world and seek feedback on our products and bring that feedback back. So that's my job on public policy. We then have a legal, we have that 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 leg, very important leg of the stool, which is legal. Uh, we have a big legal team, we always have, that is focused on compliance with laws and making sure that we're complying with the laws. And then we have a chief privacy officer of product, and that's Michelle. And I can turn it over to Michelle to describe what he does. But really, it's these three legs of the stool. I think it, it is unique. And we could talk more about sort of our roles and, and how it works in practice, if that, if that could be useful. But maybe, Michelle, you could just talk about what you do. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I'm the chief privacy officer for product. Um, and this is a role we specifically created 
in 2019 in the wake of our um, a settlement with the FTC around the consent order that resulted in a pretty fundamental change in um, how we manage privacy across the company. So as chief privacy officer for product, I'm responsible to ensure we're complying with our global data practice obligations, including our FTC consent order. And so that includes operating central product teams, engineering teams, and ops teams that are supporting privacy across the company, fundamentally instilling responsible data practices across the company. I mean, a a simplistic way to think about it is I'm more internally facing as a chief privacy officer and Aaron's more externally facing talking to regulators, talking to policymakers, understanding relevant trends and engaging with them to ultimately inform our practices. But that's a little bit of the difference if that helps. I think privacy review, Michelle, if you agree, is one of the, I think, the largest ways in which I think we intersect. So privacy review is this amazing review process that Michelle and his team have established um, at the company where every product, every new use of data is brought through essentially a, a, a process where we assess risk. And the public policy team sits on that privacy review cross-functional team, along with others across the company, including obviously Michelle's team, legal and others. And the the role we play in privacy review, I think is sort of a, a good indication of kind of what we do from public policy. And that is, as Michelle said, we go out and we'll get feedback. So we have an expert group of folks. We solicit feedback from every, in the United States, we have it, we meet with them regularly every six weeks, two months. Uh, we also have these expert groups around the world. They're made up of academics. They're made up of privacy experts. They're made up of just a, a wide variety of folks. And that's just one way in which we, we obtain feedback. But that 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 those roundtables are where we, for example, bring issues, new products for feedback. So for example, I'll just give a couple. One is Michelle was revamping the training that we were offering to all employees across the company. We actually brought these training modules, these privacy training modules to our experts and said, hey, what do you think about these? What kind of feedback do you have? Where else can we expand? Where, you know, what, what additional topics would you like to see? We take that feedback and we bring that back to Michelle and we'll, you know, we'll adjust the training because of it. There are other, there's product specific examples too, like I can talk about Ray-Ban stories where we launched a new product. It was a new form factor where we're, you know, having videos and so forth through eyeglasses. And our experts had lots of great feedback there. Again, we brought that back and we adjusted the product and also the rollout based on that feedback. So there's there's a myriad of examples, but that's just an example of how public policy, my team, intersects with Michelle's team. So I, I, you know, we, we want to get into sort of some of the substantive issues, but but I, I do think it's useful to just stay on the kind of organizational part for just a little bit longer. Um, I think it's an underappreciated part of, of you know, how, how the world works, especially in large institutions like Meta, obviously. And so one question I, uh, at least another question I had was, you know, obviously if you have two people, right, who have chief privacy officer, then there's a sort of a question of split jurisdiction and who really sort of owns privacy um, in a way that might be a little sort of clearer if you had sort of one chief privacy officer. So I am curious, you know, whether it's a matter of sort of formal reporting structure or just kind of informally, like at the end of the day, right? Who is the owner of this really important and really complicated thing called privacy? I mean, presumably at some point it's Mark Zuckerberg, right? And maybe that's the answer. Like maybe that really is the day-to-day owner. But I'm sort of curious when you have these two privacy officers, who is the person who's just in charge of privacy? I mean, ultimately Mark is the owner, you know, he runs the company, he's accountable, but you could think of my role, you know, for the you know, the compliance wonks amongst your listener as the conventional second line of defense from a, and the owner of that from a compliance perspective, right? That, that's a, that's a term of how companies do compliance that has some maturity and resonance in in industries. And it's very mature in say financial services, but applying this three lines of defense model to privacy is a newer thing. You can think of my role as the conventional second line of defense, a core challenge function on the company to ensure that they're understanding privacy risks and everything we do and everything we ship and that there's sufficient mitigations and oversight of that. And at a company of Meta's scale and complexity of data use, that challenge function looks a lot more like a product and engineering team than it does a conventional risk and compliance function. So there's enormous amount of technical depth in ensuring we have the right safeguards, the right central systems on how data flows through our pipes. 
We need our own independent second line consumer product capabilities to ship things like a sophisticated privacy policy that users can engage with and embed actual controls into the policy itself. So users know when they want to toggle things on and off, it's right there in the policy. So I have product teams for that. Then a whole bunch of other technical functions at the intersection of risk and engineering, things like technical audit teams um, who verify implementation of decisions, various red teams to test vulnerabilities in our systems, um, things like that. So that that's what my organization looks like. And, you know, it's call it a second line is an apt comparison, I think. So building off that, how do you get, you know, the engineering and the business folks to to listen to you? And I ask that because, you know, to some extent, privacy is in tension with the the core of Meta's business model, which is based on collecting and, and processing user data. And we've had a great example of that in headlines recently. We know that from reporting that Meta's seen advertising revenues drop significantly um, in response to Apple tightening its iOS privacy restrictions. So I'm I'm curious uh, if you feel like you're swimming against the current a little bit here. No, I, I don't think so. I mean, it's always been in the company's DNA to understand privacy risks from the data use and mitigate them. And the company's made a real sea change in how seriously it takes that in the last, call it four or five years. Real catalytic events there were both our FTC order in the summer of 2019 and then the continued entrenchment of the GDPR in Europe, which came into effect in 2018, but has been continually more deeply understood since then. But, you know, at the company, the acknowledgement of privacy risks and their mitigation is like now deep in the product development culture. Aaron referenced this thing called the privacy review process, which we've stood up like I don't know if people understand, but every new or modified product feature or practice that we ship that uses user data in a new way gets a quite robust privacy review where product teams on the ground, as well as legal policy and my teams, identify any potential risk to people's privacy in that product and develop mitigations. And then the mitigations are subject to an implementation review and so on. And all this happens before the product ships. So it's it's a structural way of, you could think of it as embedding privacy by design in the DNA of the company and requiring it. And this has become a core part of our product development process. It's sort of part and parcel with it. Privacy considerations also filter into every product and engineering teams in other ways. We have a, um, a process we call the regulatory readiness process, which runs across the company where we track hundreds and hundreds of a fast evolving set of global requirements that may impact our data practices in some way or another. A new youth requirement in a given country to limit data processing for under 18s in a particular area. A new definition of what may, may be called sensitive data in a particular company. Every individual country's you know version of GDPR that's coming out, we track all of these. They're arrayed thematically against various product themes like sensitive data use or youth or ads data use. They're built into canonical strategies for product teams across the company and they're executed over a multi-quarter or multi-half timeframe. And that taking in those requirements and executing against them is becoming increasingly second nature for the company and increasing part of how we operate. So it's a long answer to your question, Quinta, but I'd say fundamentally, like this is getting built into the DNA of all our product development processes. And I, I don't think you'd find a product team at Meta who who would tell you they ignore privacy requirements or they're not required to or need to, to build for them. And, and I could just build on that really quickly because from where I sit, where I'm often bringing in feedback or having product leaders come out and speak with experts, they're enthusiastic about learning and understanding what the feedback is. And, and I do believe that they, they, as Michelle said, they're, they're not just doing it from a compliance perspective. They're interested. They're interested in figuring out ways to deliver really good products for people that protect their privacy, that these, that people will be interested in. And it's certainly in the ad space, we know we can deliver ads and protect people's privacy. We we do. And so I again just building on it, I think it's it's it is part of the ethos. And I and I think there's actually a real interest and enthusiasm by product leaders to to do this right. 
So we've we've mentioned the uh, 2019 FTC settlement a few times. So let's get down to brass tacks on that and and give some context and dive in a little. Um, so for for listeners who aren't familiar, um, in 2019, Meta paid a very large five billion dollar fine to the FTC to settle a claim that Meta had violated a, a 2012 FTC consent order around 11, using user data to be used by third-party apps. And the instance that listeners might be most familiar with has to do with Cambridge Analytica. Just so we kind of understand what happened here, could you walk us through what happened at Meta that led to this investigation and settlement with the FTC? It's a really interesting issue, which which actually gets to the heart of, in many ways, you know, allowing people to take their data with them, data portability, right? This is a concept that is actually part of GDPR. It's been around for a really long time. And when the mobile environment, this is kind of going way back in 2010, 11, 12, when back in the day when when folks were starting to use mobile apps, words with friends, you would take your data, you'd take your friends with you, right? It was sort of this idea of, of, uh, of how can we enable people to explore these new applications with their friends. And so that was sort of the premise of this idea of apps and sharing information with apps. And I've been at the company since 2011. And so I sort of saw over time how we thought about this idea of data portability. And okay, so we started with this idea of like, take your friend's data with you. We started to then think about ways in which, and at every time through the process, we're very cognizant of the responsibility of apps on our platform, right? Application, any application developer has has to comply with our standards. We have terms of service for them. They have to post a privacy policy. Over time, we restricted the amount of data that they could access about people. We had a granular data permissions interface that before an individual would access an application, they would have to consent to have certain data shared, again, with the privacy policy there. And so the idea was that there's sort of this ecosystem. There's the platform, that's us, where we're enabling people, users who are on the platform, to interact with and engage with applications. That's the other party in this ecosystem. And, you know, the question is about the roles and responsibilities of these players in the ecosystem. What's interesting, what happened with Cambridge, just to sort of go go to there, is this is a this was an application that, again, individuals chose to use that was um, this is your digital life. It was like a personality quiz. And there was a privacy policy and so forth. But we learned that the application was misusing people's data in contravention of our terms. And so legally, we took action to to stop them, get them off the platform. They had promised us that they had done certain things. So that was sort of the essence of this debate is, you know, what was our responsibility post the application telling us that it had ceased using the information and so forth. And we had learned that they didn't. And so it was sort of this back and forth. Long story short, that that then became an issue. We had auditors throughout this time period pursuant to the 2011 uh, consent order, but it became a question of, again, what are the roles and responsibilities? And as you said, Quinta, the FTC took the position that we had more responsibility to do things. And so therefore we had we had this additional consent order now from 2019. That's sort of a very rough summary of kind of the background there. But I think that this as Michelle said, with this consent order, this new consent order on these issues, it actually didn't resolve many of these same questions. I put out a paper in 2019 around, again, what are what is the responsibility in pla- of platforms and apps? It's a really interesting question, even to this day, around, uh, I think we agree we could have done more, but the, there's still a question of, you know, when an individual chooses to uh, share information with an application, what then is the responsibility of the of the platform and the individual and the application? So it's interesting how those questions persist. But that's a that's a long answer, Quinta, to the question of sort of the background. And then, as Michelle said, we've built a new privacy program. The FTC order, this new one, has just an incredible amount of accountability requirements in it, which uh, Michelle can go into. And that's sort of the genesis of of what Michelle is talking about in this. In his in this new organization, this kind of rebuilt organization that he's put together. Yeah, so and, and I obviously very much want to hear about w- sort of what's what's happened since then. But I, I do just want to follow up, um, Aaron, on sort of how how you described it. And I think it's really helpful to sort of hear your perspective because obviously this is a complicated issue. I, I will admit it it does sound to me like what you've described is actually kind of quite different than I think how a lot of us that have been following this understand the issue. I mean, the way you describe it is: look, we had these data portability 
data portability because it was better for users. And then those users decided to share some data and then some folks decided to act badly. And that's really unfortunate. And, and like that does seem like one way of framing the issue. On the other hand, Facebook did pay a $5 billion fine, which is an awful lot if you think the issue is just some other people made a mistake. And so I guess what I'm trying to understand is, I mean, at the end of this, what I imagine was a fairly unpleasant process of dealing with the FTC and of looking internally and thinking through, I mean, do, do you all think that at the end of the day, there was you know, a serious mistake made in even framing this issue as, look, this is fundamentally one of users giving consent and third-party actors behaving badly. And we're not really, you know, we, we kind of wash our hands of that once we have gotten the appropriate sort of consents from from the relevant parties? Listen, I think that we recognize there's more we could have done in this situation to whether it's notify people once we had learned that this app had done something wrong. So I'm not trying to indicate that we don't have responsibility. I think that we recognize we have responsibility. We think this, we think the consent order addresses the concerns, many of them, but I still think there are still, there still remain questions around these issues around platforms and applications. I'm not trying to, I just think that's, it's an interesting history. I, I do think there's things we could have done better. I think at the time we were very clear on those things we could have done better. Uh, I just think from a public policy standpoint, again, where I sit is, is in terms of these conversations around these roles and responsibilities. That's, that's more my place where I sit. So I'm coming from my perspective on this. Again, that's I'm not saying that we don't take responsibility. We do, for sure. And I think that the FTC consent order that we agreed to is taking responsibility, for sure. Yeah. One thing I just want to interject with looking forward, and it's just notable that in framing the 2019 order, you guys focused on the $5 billion fine, which is a big deal. It's a big number. That was a core part of the headlines. But it is far from the most impactful part of the consent order or the settlement. Like far more impactful for the company has been the extent to which it's led to a fundamental change in our practices. I don't think people know we've invested internally an additional $5 billion. We will have cumulatively by the end of this year in people operating expenses around building up and improving our privacy practices. And the company operates extremely differently now versus in 2018 around privacy. So that's just one point I want to leave you with is the fine was a big number, but the more substantive action is the change in the practice. Yeah. So let's, let's talk more about the the change in the practice. So you all agreed to a, a number of restrictions and, and corporate changes. I would love to hear you walk through in detail what those changes were and how the implementation has gone. I mean, The fundamental wrapper of all the required changes is the requirement to have a robust privacy program where we fully get our arms around all the diverse array of privacy risks that users are subject, that we're subject to given the the, the breadth of our data operations and an associated set of mitigations to those risks that we oversee and monitor with, you know, rigor and consistency. So like, okay, what does that actually practically mean? I mean, I think we have a dozen domains where we manage 500 different safeguards in total, ranging from the rigor with which we manage incidents and SEVs and software breakage that inevitably occurs to data lifecycle management. Like this is our deletion practices, our data retention practices, ensuring those are consistent and overseen to the transparency and control that users have around our data and whether they have adequate control. And this privacy review process I mentioned is probably the most significant manifestation of this and the way that most product teams at the company experience this program. And then perhaps most importantly, all of our efforts here in this program are subject to what seems to me to be an unprecedented level of external oversight. We've created a new independent privacy committee of our board of directors that we meet with quarterly or more frequently to review all this. We're subject to a constant and ongoing external assessment of how the privacy program is functioning from an external auditor that spent like over 200,000 audit hours in the last couple of years. And we meet with the FTC on roughly a weekly basis, keeping the staff apprised of major product launches and how we're mitigating privacy risks. 
any what we internally call SEVs or incidents we've had and, and, and general updates on the privacy program. We do the same with regulators around the world um, and data protection authorities around the world. So that's just to give you a little bit of a taste of what's involved here. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private 
by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Yeah, so no, that that's very helpful. And, and I appreciate the robustness of the sort of procedures and institutions that you have set up. And my question is, when you understand or you think about what it means for Meta to take privacy seriously, like or whatever the sort of the whatever the 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 slogan right you have in your mind is, do you think of that largely in these procedural terms? As in, you know, at every step of the way, we have someone whose job it is to thoughtfully and as independently as possible take a hard squint at the privacy issues, or do you think that in addition to that, there's like a substantive limit or a substantive standard that you're trying to to meet in terms of how much privacy users and others have at the end of the system. In a way, I guess, you know, earlier we, we asked whether or not there's some tension in some fundamental sense between the goal of privacy and the business model of of Meta, or to be not to pick on Meta, just any large tech platform that processes user data. And so I think this is kind of another way of asking that question. You know, at the end of the day, do you view your obligations as putting certain products, let's say, completely out of bounds? Because no matter how thoughtfully or carefully or intelligently designed or, you know, they just have too much of a cost of privacy? Or is your view really, look, privacy is not the be all and end all. It's balanced against other values for users. And as long as we're doing the best that we can, given what we're offering our users, that's it. That for us is whether it's a matter of satisfying the FTC or just our own consciousnesses, enough for privacy. I mean, the way I would frame it, it's the existence of these processes ensures that in anything we do, we're sufficiently and appropriately considering privacy risks to people from our products and data practices and mitigating them. So like in practice, how this results in the like types of substantive stances that you're talking about is in, in the detail of the breadth of privacy on how we think about the evolution of some of our practices and particular themes. Like let's take sensitive data use, for example, where the definition of this is expanding in real time on what constitutes sensitive data based on and what's a risk around sensitive data. So we have multiple internal processes that look to update the definition of what is sensitive data, look to update our controls around the necessary purpose limitation of that data, the necessary getting user consent to use it, and the necessary not using certain types of data in certain contexts. So it's it's like the existence of these procedural steps that brings rigor and comprehensiveness to like substantively how we use data in our products. Yeah. So I want to attack the question from a, maybe a little bit of a different angle to get to sort of how you define privacy as a, as a concept and ask about a, uh, another settlement that resulted from the Cambridge Analytica situation. Um, so Meta recently reached a $725 million settlement that I believe has been approved in a preliminary way from a judge where that we're waiting full approval. And I was reading up on that case and recalled that, um, so at the motion to dismiss stage, uh, Meta, which was them, Facebook, um, had argued that people don't have a privacy interest in information that they make available to their friends on social media. So the argument being, you know, if I share information on a limited Facebook group, I wouldn't have an expectation of privacy against Facebook using that data elsewhere for other functions. This was in 2019. So a lot of time has passed. Um, would Meta still take that position today? Look, I'm not familiar with the specific legal argument you're referencing, but the assertion that the company believes that users have no privacy interest in Meta is just not correct. Like, we take users' privacy very seriously, and they absolutely bring certain many privacy rights to all their interactions with our products. And we're investing massively to ensure that those rights are preserved. So, but there may be something lost in translation on the nuance of that legal argument in that context. So, I, I think it'd be fun to sort of, you know, now that we've talked about the, the the settlement and the changes you've made, to sort of 
uh, kind of go through sort of a bunch of sort of new and emerging kind of policy and, and tech issues and sort of get your senses of, of, of how you think about privacy. So one question uh, is how you're all thinking about privacy with respect to the, the metaverse. Uh, and obviously, there's a sort of separate question about what the status of the metaverse is and, and you know, whether Facebook is, is pivoting, but sort of putting it aside, obviously, there's been a lot of work going into it. And there will be some amount of work continuing to go uh, to go into it. And the metaverse raises, I think, a lot of very interesting questions about privacy, because, of course, you know, compared to previous sort of iterations of meta social media offerings, the metaverse is orders of magnitude richer, right? You're not just dealing with text and images, you're dealing with uh, an entire virtual uh, virtual world, maybe even one day with legs, uh, if, uh, if we can, if we can figure that out. <laughs> and so obviously, you, you know, you have the ability to provide uh, or the ability for Meta to process far more user information, maybe more sensitive user information. And also, there's kind of a more vertical integration here because, of course, Meta now owns the VR headsets that people are going to be using, which then is another you know, huge potential source of, of information, right? I mean, just thinking about the, the little cameras that the VR headsets have to do spatial positioning, right? Which obviously then presumably capture information about you know, what's in my living room. So how are you all thinking about the privacy challenges which, which I mean, I, I assume you would agree are in principle immense, though I'm sure you have sort of good ways of thinking about how to deal with those. Just to take a step back, I just to be clear, the metaverse won't be built or operated by uh, or governed by any one company or institution, as you know. And we're um, we're working with international bodies and lots of organizations on meta- metaverse standards. The World Economic Forum is thinking through these issues. But just to answer your question on on privacy, I think privacy in the metaverse it will be informed by. Uh, the kind of expectations that we're developing from the physical world and by privacy norms and experiences in today's internet. So we do think that some of the basic privacy principles, which are technology neutral, will apply to the metaverse, right? So the kinds of principles that we know, uh, whether it's transparency, whether it's the ability to control your experience, to access to delete your data. But like you said, there will be unique and novel characteristics of the metaverse. You're talking about presence and immersions. And so there will be some new privacy considerations. Um, I do think that questions around, for example, augmented reality's impact on bystanders, right? So people around our devices uh, when they're in their in use is an interesting one. Avatar identity and security, um, privacy in these immersive environments. And so these are all really important questions. And these are exactly the kinds of questions that we need to and are having these conversations with stakeholders across the, really the ecosystem. And I think that you know we do have a set of responsible innovation principles that we've put out in 2020. And those principles have defined our approach and philosophy to, and Michelle can talk about the product development piece, but there's certainly, there's certainly these, these concepts about putting people first. And that's, that's something that Mark always talks about is you want to design technology that puts people first. And so you have to be a reasonable, responsible steward of people's data in that environment. And so we've, we've adopted that principle in, in, in how we design, for example, headsets and data that we're collecting. So, I mean, I can give an example, like in the MetaQuest Pro, when you choose to enable eye tracking, there we're very, we're limiting the, the software on the headset. It analyzes like infrared images of your eyes, like raw image data, create an estimate of what you're looking at. And it's done on the device in real time. And it's just processed on the headset. It's deleted from the headset after this abstract gaze is generated. We don't store the raw image data. It's not collected. So that's just like an, an example of, of where we're like really wanting to make sure that we're limiting the data collection. We're responsible stewards. So putting people first. The second principle is providing controls that matter. Listen, you know, I have uh, tried to argue and I, I will always argue, people may disagree, uh, that we are I once called I once called our service a privacy enhancing technology that might have been too far but I do think this idea of putting people at the center of their experience is something that Meta has always since I've been at the company has always valued right so we've controls that matter and we could talk about controls in all different contexts but in the context of the metaverse we're really thinking through what controls matter how can they be simple so you know we've got 
different types of controls in VR I'm happy to go into. But again, a big principle is controls that matter. The third uh, innovation principle is, you know, consider everyone. So we want to make sure we're thinking about all types of stakeholders. So we've got accessibility tabs in our settings menu so that people who are colorblind can more easily distinguish colors in the headset. We've got uh, different types of options that really help us think about everybody. And then the last is something that we've long had. And again, this is a this is a core principle that when I talk to product leaders, they it's never surprised people, right? We don't want to surprise people. We want to be, and we aim to be as transparent as possible about how we're using people's data. So that's just an example, and I'll stop there, of how we're thinking through privacy in the metaverse. But this is the exactly the kinds of topic that we're bringing to these external roundtables that I mentioned before, because so much is changing. It is a new form factor, and we really want to get it right. And we think the key is having conversations and getting feedback. What about another sort of important new technology that I suspect Meta is currently rushing headlong into, which is machine learning and in particular large language models, right? Um, obviously, this is something that, you know, I don't think we need to give too much background on what's been happening in the last few months. I mean, this headlong rush, this sort of huge competition, I think whether or not people are willing to say so publicly, there's obviously a competitive factor between the biggest tech companies in the world to develop these new large language models. Uh, Meta has has Llama, right, um, to compete with, with Google's models and uh, OpenAI and Microsoft's models. Uh, you know, obviously, again, here you have huge potential privacy issues, right? Not to say that there aren't enormous values that could be had, but you're, you know, you're processing massive amounts of information. And in addition, you're taking, you know, user communication with these potential chatbots, right? And you need to process that information in order to provide the most useful responses to users. And not just that, but you might need to hold on to that information and build a memory um, you know, within these large language models to be most useful to, to users. So I, I guess sort of a similar question, you know, what, what does taking privacy mean there? Uh, and maybe to sort of bring it back to sort of one of our earlier questions. I mean, you know, w- when the engineers and the product people say, look, you know, we, we need access to as much data, as much memory as humanly possible, because it's the only way we can build these models. And by the way, Google and, you know, OpenAI are going to eat our lunch. You know, how, how do you navigate that, you know, and, and, and push back if, if, if that's, you know, if, if that's even sort of what you feel like your role, uh, your roles uh, should, should be in this, in this context? Yeah. I mean, I totally agree on generative AI as being, you know, the most important trend of the moment in the near term. But I mean, we've prioritized building AI responsibly for years. I mean, we've had a responsible AI team for several years. This is like interdisciplinary topics, teams working on fairness, transparency with system cards, privacy, robustness, overall governance of AI, with, with fundamental mission ensuring that a- AI benefits people in society. So, so this is not a new muscle for us. On generative AI specifically, there is a bunch of ongoing work that will continue as standards develop around this, but it includes like ensuring we're robust on, for example, uh, the training data sets. And that we have the legal rights to use all training data that we are using, that people are clear that certain data types of data is eligible and can be used for that training, that we're taking the right mitigations in the training, in the training set to where possible or where, where required de-identify. Then there's a whole other separate set of questions on the output of these models, which is yet more nuanced and complex and specific to a given use case of a given chatbot. And that work is ongoing at the company as part of the product development process. As we sort of expand on Llama, look at different use cases around generative AI. But the point is, this is something we do now as a core part of everything we ship. And generative AI is no different in that. So let's talk about privacy legislation. TikTok has recently been hauled over the coals um, in in Congress that's created a lot of interest in potentially some kind of comprehensive privacy legislation in the United States, which is a a topic that has been uh, floated many times. It's never come to pass. We'll, We'll see if it does this time. So I'm curious, you know, if Meta has a position on privacy legislation. Yeah, we support federal privacy legislation. That holds all organizations accountable while also promoting innovation and giving people control. And we've we've long, and Mark has come out in support of privacy legislation 
at the federal level in the United States, and, and we've supported legislation uh, around the world. I, I think, like you said, whether or not we'll have federal legislation is 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 difficult to predict. And we are certainly seeing several states, uh, in the absence of federal legislation, coming forward and and in in many ways putting together pieces of legislation that 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 are pretty pretty interoperable if you if I can use that word with what we've seen in Europe there are many good principles we think in the general data protection regulation in Europe the idea of strong individual rights organizational accountability Michelle's talked about accountability uh, these are principles that we think should exist in all data protection laws and we're seeing some aspects of these of pieces of this, like for example, rights, or, you know, strong individual rights. You see that in legislation in you know Virginia, Connecticut, other states are following um, those models where you have again rights to access your data, to delete your data, to correct your data. The, you have you know the ability to control your data. So it is interesting to see as federal legislation may not be moving, the states are coming and filling that that gap. Yes, and and I I appreciate that you brought up the 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 state legislations because I think it is likely that that's where we're going to see the most action. And and a lot of these states, as you point out, have sort of what you'd imagine sort of fairly kind of traditional conceptions of privacy legislation. But some are doing some let's call them innovative things, right? Not to not to prejudge the case. And I think an interesting example here is Utah, which has moved quite aggressively on restricting the ability of of you know minors and young people to access social media platforms uh, without their parents' permission, requiring that they prove proof of age, requiring that platforms um, you know allow parents to to access you know the data of of young people. And I'm curious, you know, what you all think about the merits of those proposals, right, which are, of course, framed very much as measures to protect privacy, privacy of young people, and also kind of a sort of a, a second order question of, you know, when a, a state, and you could imagine also, we could apply this to the federal government or a foreign country or a foreign jurisdiction like the EU, you know, when they set out their substantive views of privacy, right? Going back to an earlier question, right? we think that what it means to respect privacy is that a 15-year-old does not get an Instagram account, right? Like that's what we think privacy requires, given our theory of human flourishing and human psychology and all sorts of stuff like that. Do you view Meta's role as taking a substantive position on that and saying, we agree, we disagree, whatever? Or is it to say, look, you know, we have a kind of a procedural view of privacy and applying that to the government, if the democratic process says that in such and such domain, this is the privacy standards we're going to follow, like that's what we're going to do, even if we think Instagram's totally fine for 15-year-olds. So there's a lot to unpack in that in that question. And I think it raises a lot of really interesting points. Let me take a step back. I think that there are, so separate and apart from these privacy pieces of legislation, which I'm talking more of the comprehensive privacy piece of legislation, we are seeing, as you said, these youth bills which are very much focused on they you say privacy but it also is safety and well-being and i and um and utah as you mentioned has has taken a has taken an, an interesting approach novel approach really that you know to to you know as you know just as backing up i think I think most of your listeners know that in the United States, at the federal level, we have the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, which has 13 as the age at which, under which parents have to provide consent. And so, and we certainly don't have under 13, we don't collect data uh, or have a service directed to under 13s. And we have a variety of, uh, ex- of ways in which we try to ensure that people on our platform are having the right experience for them and the right age appropriate experience for them. I think what's interesting is with Utah, with requiring allowing parents to have i think it's the password and access to an under 18 social media account i think it raises really interesting and difficult questions um about the right the ability of 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 teens to to connect online and the ability for them to do things in their own privacy from their parents i mean many teens i've th- i've three children, teenagers, um, and they're discovering themselves. And so I, th- I think it's an interesting approach. I, I can't say at this point, again, I sit on the public policy team. I don't know how we're going to, it's, it's the Utah approach is, is relatively new. And I know it, I think comes into effect later this year and um, other states are considering them. And so we'll think, we'll figure out how we're going to comply. I mean, we comply with, with applicable laws. That's, that's what we have to do. And our, our lawyers will, will take that on. I just think from a public policy standpoint, it's really interesting to, to see, 
you know, how legislators are, are, are balancing and figuring out that balance between the rights of, 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 of youth and, and, and parents, absolutely, you know, and the role of parents in protecting kids. I mean, so anyway, I think it's a really interesting balance that they've tried to strike. We've struck it a different way, but if, if a law is a law, we're going to have to figure out how to comply. So I want to close by asking about EU regulation. We've been talking about the the United States, but of course, when talking about tech regulation, uh, the European Union is often far ahead. And in January, uh, Meta was fined $400 million by the EU for targeted ads under the General Data Protection Regulation, which is a definitely an example of the EU sort of coming out in front in tech regulation. Given how slow Congress is, I mean, we've we've talked about how, you know, the fact that there isn't federal privacy legislation yet. Do you think we're just going to end up in a world where we sort of, you know, it's the EU's world and, and we, we all live in it where we have U.S. technology companies that are operating under EU standards? I think that you're seeing approaches around the world. I mean, we just talked about state laws in the U.S. We certainly are seeing, you know, in Latin America, there's a variety, LGBT, for example, in Brazil. Um, listen, I mean, I do think Europe is leads often in this space, and, and you're seeing them certainly in AI. Is it is, is it you know Michelle talked about AI from a product perspective, but in terms of the regulatory perspective, I mean, we're certainly seeing uh, Europe come out in front there on their regulation, and I think uh, that's going to be really interesting to see how how they how they address these issues. So I think Europe is a is it certainly leads, but I wouldn't say it's the uh, it's the only place where we're seeing regulation. I think we'll leave it there. Michelle, Aaron, uh, thanks a lot. I really appreciate the um, the insight into, into how you think about these issues at Meta. Thank you. Nice to meet you both. Thanks for having us. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, a Lawfare podcast series on the information ecosystem. The Lawfare podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com backslash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. The podcast is edited by Jen Pache Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Gann. As always, thanks for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.